So something that we, we do here is we desire to work through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, and to exposit the best ways that we can. And last week we got to the end of the book, and something that we do is we try to give an overview summary of the book, so working through the entirety of it. Try to do that in 40 minutes is not necessarily an easy task. Uh, Rob's always done these, um, and for some reason he had given me this one, and I think next time I will gladly uh, decline that offer, as this has not been an easy thing. Um, but if you look at your bulletin here, you will, see, you will see four points. Don't be alarmed. We will not be here till 2 o'clock, okay? Four points, and I just want to walk you through them to hopefully kind of help us understand what we're going to be talking through and, and how at least this made sense to me, and hopefully it'll make sense to you. So Colossians, there are four chapters, and that first section, I believe, is kind of broken up from verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 5, and that is the prayer and the premise. Paul kind of sets out what, what he's going to talk about, but he's also, he's praying for the church in Colossae. And then we get to this really famous part, the end of, the, of chapter 1, where he talks about the preeminence of Christ. And then from there, he moves on to the problem. And the problem is important. The problem that we have here is why this letter is even written. And we're going to focus a lot on that because if there is no problem, I don't know if there would be a letter per se. And then in chapter 3, he takes us through what I call the petition or the application. Okay? We see the premise. We see the problem. Now we see the petition, the application. Okay, so what do we do with this? Paul walks them through that. And finally, chapter 4, verse 2, through the end of the letter, we see the final prescription, the final prescription that Paul gives to the church in Colossae. And hopefully that, that'll help us make sense of what Paul is doing here in the letter to the church of Colossae. And the big issue is this idea of syncretism. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what is syncretism. But first, I want to talk about the American church. Okay, the American church, I think, can be a have-it-your-way, a country club approach to church or even Christianity. In the church, in church planting, you see books out there. These are actual titles that I found of how to plant a dynamic church, how to keep a church plant growing, Creating churches that unreached people love to attend. Helping church planters become movement makers. Planting fast-growing churches. Many of these techniques, they start with the culture. And they ask, how will this work in our culture? Or sometimes a church, they'll focus on the problems of the day within the community in the area that they're in. They'll look at things like poverty, injustice, inclusion, politics, social issues that will allow that to shape their church and what they will be about and what they will want to do to help people with the issues of the day. They do this in the name of Jesus and for the gospel, but it seems like they missed the mark with their church. It'd be more about the humanitarian aid or help of the world's, of, of, the, of the problems that they see rather than the world's greatest problem, which is sin. And I will say that 
we should help the poor. We should help orphans, widows, marginalized people. The church should care for those who are in difficult situations. I think we would all hopefully agree with that. But the meta-narrative of the Bible, the meta-narrative of the Bible is not how, uh, how God helped the poor and the marginalized. That's not the meta-narrative of the Bible. The meta-narrative of the Bible is how God redeems those who are separated from him. Now, I focused on seminary and missiology, missions. How do we do this? How do we do it well? And I'm all about contextualization. Contextualization is important. You are a bad missionary if you do not contextualize the culture that you are in. Even Paul himself in his letters, the book of Acts, he contextualizes incredibly, incredibly well in his ministry. And if you are not a student of the culture, you are not being a biblical missionary, a biblical pastor, church planter. However, there comes a point where we have crossed the line We've gone too far in our contextualization. And this is what is called syncretism. So what is syncretism? It is the mixing of incompatible religious ideas and practices. It is adding to Christianity with other pagan religions or cultural traditions that are not Christianity. I think it's one of the biggest issues that we deal today, not just here in America, but globally, throughout the world and the church. What it says is, let's take Christianity, let's add other rituals, preferences, traditions to it that are not found in the Bible. It is a form of taking something outside of Christianity and making it a part of it. Legalism is another part of this. And if you look at your outline that I've put together, the third point, the problem, a lot of it has to deal with legalism. It is one point But I want to start with this because it gives us the reasoning of why Paul had written the letter to the church of Colossae. And I already mentioned this. If there there is not a problem, there might not be a letter. But there is a problem. But how does Paul deal with this? If you read with me, Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, you'll see this name, Epaphras. Okay, verse 7 says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras, the church leader at the church in Colossae, maybe the the church planter, possibly. Paul, when he was in Ephesus, it was believed that Epaphras came to Ephesus and he heard the gospel for the first time, believed, was trained, he was sent back to share Christ to the church at Colossae. Some people there believed, started church, but then the syncretism starts to creep in. Epaphras, he doesn't know what to do, so he visits Paul in Rome, or quite possibly he was put in prison with Paul in Rome. How we know that is Philemon 23 mentions that Epaphras is a fellow prisoner with Paul. So either he went to visit Paul in Rome, or by God's providence, they just sent him there to be with Paul without knowing that they had maybe a relationship. I think it's a very interesting thing that God would work in such a way that there's an issue going on in Colossae and quite possibly they arrest Epaphras and they put him in prison and unbeknownst to them, they put him in prison with Paul, the ultimate missionary. And there's a problem that's taking place there. This kind of made me think about 
how the gates of hell will not, proceed, or not prevail against the church. That even though that Paul and Epaphras are in prison, ministry is still being done. In fact, they might be in maybe one of the safest places they could be in. Paul doesn't have to worry about being bitten by snakes or being shipwrecked. It kind of made me think about the game Monopoly. All right, stay with me here. All right, stay with me. How many of you played the game Monopoly, right? Mostly everybody in here. Monopoly is like the, the number one board game in America, all right? Whether you agree with that or not, this isn't the time to debate that. But Monopoly is like one of the most important or one of the most famous board games in maybe even the world. But the idea of Monopoly is to monopolize, to, to gain the most amount of money possible and to bankrupt everybody else, right? And if you get to the end of the game, you know, your goal is, is to get as many of these properties, all right? You want to get like the same color of properties because once you have the same color of properties, you can then start putting houses and hotels on those properties. And when people land on those properties, they owe you a ton of money, all right? And so when you get to the end of the game, Almost every space is taken up with either a house or a hotel, and you don't want to land on anybody else's spots. So you want to know where the safest place to be at the end of Monopoly is? You know, jail. You want to be in jail because you just sit there, and people just roll the dice, all right, and they land on your properties, and you're sitting in jail, and you're just making all this kind of money and not paying anybody a dime, right? That is a safe place to be. And I think that Paul and Epaphras, they are in a safe place right now, and the word of God is working an incredible way. And when Epaphras gets there, he shares everything that is going on, the good, the bad, the ugly. And Paul then writes this letter to the church in Colossae with Epaphras' information and is sent back to the church in Colossae. And Paul, point number one, the prayer and premise, Paul starts this letter out and he praises God for them. Look at, look at verse three through five. He says, we thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, as we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And then jump down to verse nine. It says, and so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul is commending them. He's praising God for their faith in Christ who they have trusted and praying that the Lord keeps them faithful with knowledge and wisdom and understanding that they would be strengthened to endure in Colossae. This is the Lord's work in their lives and Paul's prayers are important because he's going to the Lord on their behalf to keep them solid in the gospel with where they are right now. Paul cannot be with them. So he's trying to encourage them and Epaphras the ways that he can. All he can do in prison is he can write letters and he can pray earnestly for the Lord to work in special ways. And it seems like this is their only hope at this point for Paul to get this letter to them and for him to pray. But Paul prays and he writes this premise of the letter and really this theme around the book of Colossians that we have mentioned each week, the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ, the fullness and sufficiency of Christ so that the church can stay faithful. It's kind of the summary statement, the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ, it guides the church to faithfulness. It's what's taking place here. Paul is trying to, 
help guide them to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Because this is a Christological epistle. The book of Colossians is a Christological epistle. 25 times the word Christ is used in these four four short chapters. 16 times Jesus is used. Seven times Lord. Why? Because he is trying his best to get them so incredibly solid on the gospel and to see it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that you can have this faith. Look to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. He is the creator, the sustainer, the authority. He's the head of the church. But not only that, look at what he has done in verses 19 and 20. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's reconciling the world to himself those who would come to faith in him by making peace on the cross. And that peace that he made on the cross was for the church, for those who would come to know him. And he's using Paul as a conduit to spread the saving message of the gospel, to take it wherever God calls Paul to go, even in his present suffering in prison. Paul is doing his ministry the ways that he can. He's he's writing and he's praying. And the Lord is still using Paul in his absence of the body in prison for the church of Colossae. Paul's ministry is going forward. And this leads us to the problem in chapter two. Paul, he leads, their, leads them to Christ, tells them to walk with them. Why? Because they're not walking with Christ presently. This is the problem. They're to be rooted there's to be built up. They're to be established in Christ. But the root of the problem we see in, in verse 8 of chapter 2 here. Verse 8 says that, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. They've been captivated by philosophy and empty deceit. What are these philosophies that they are dealing with? Well, they're in a pluralistic society here. They're dealing with Gnosticism, Greek mythology, Jewish mysticism. And there's a good chance that all three of these things are creeping in to the church and what they believe. But all those things, Paul says, they are empty deceit. They are following human traditions because that's what philosophy can turn into outside of God and the Bible. Empty deceit, elemental principles that are worldly that are false. These are the issues. These are the false teachings that are coming in to distort the gospel. This is the syncretism that is taking place within the church of Colossae, taking Christ and adding other elements to the gospel or what it means to live out the gospel, to be a follower of Jesus. The best way to put it might be this this Christian hybrid form of Christianity. It did not eliminate Christianity, but it looked a lot like the pagan religions that came alongside of it. This is why Paul focuses so much on the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ, his supremacy of who Jesus is. Everything here points back to Jesus. You've probably heard this illustration before, but I think it fits really well. I'm gonna use it. 
We've probably even used it here before, but it's like looking at counterfeit money. When people are trained to identify what counterfeit money is, they are trained heavily not to look at what the false, the counterfeits are, but to look at the real thing. What is real money? What is real U.S. currency? To what makes it what it is, to look at the watermarks, look at the different symbols that it has on it, to where they're at. Not to look at all the different counterfeits, the different things that are not true, that are not real. They want the real paper bills to disprove the fakes. And I think that's what Paul is trying to do here. Very, something very similar. He addresses the fakes and tells them that they are not true, but he's always pointing them back to Christ. He's always pointing them back to the gospel. He focuses so much of this letter on showing them the fullness and the sufficiency of Jesus. A Christological epistle. He, Jesus, is what you worship because of what he did on the cross. It is finish. Now let's not add to the finishing work of Jesus. Let's not add to what Jesus has already done because when you try to do that, you take away from the finishing work of Jesus. When you add to the gospel or when you syncretize the gospel, you actually take away from the gospel. It's a confusing math problem. When you add to the gospel, you actually take away from the gospel. A confusing math problem. But look at verse 23 of chapter 2. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. It says, these have indeed have an appearance of wisdom. He's talking about these, these philosophies. They have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What is happening here in the church of Colossae? It looks like wisdom. It looks like wisdom. It looks like the philosophies of the day. And sometimes it looks very religious. It looks very rigorous and has the appearance of value, but it is of no value, Paul tells them. It is no value. It is self-made and it does not resemble the gospel. It is asceticism. It's a hard word to say, asceticism. I'm probably even saying it wrong, but who cares? It is asceticism. Well, what is asceticism? Well, R.C. Sproul says that this about asceticism, it says that it is the most common and deadly form of legalism the most common and deadly form of legalism. This is the legalism that makes human regulations and traditions measure of the true holiness and salvation. This is the legalism that makes human regulations and traditions the measure of true holiness and salvation. It appears to be holy, righteous, good, but it is not. It is legalism. Paul brings this up because even in the worldly religions that they are dealing with, with the rules and regulations that they are dealing with, they cannot do them. They cannot do them perfectly. This is what it says to be holy, but you're not being holy. The gospel message is about what Christ has done to make one holy, trusting in him. It's not doing these things. It's not work. That cannot make you holy. Only Jesus can do that. And it, remain, it reminded me of a time when I was doing international student ministry at Ohio State. You know, roughly 7,000 international students from all over the world come to Columbus to study at the Ohio State University. And during that time, we would, we would, uh, we would meet people, meet different students, majority of them from, from China, 
We meet them on campus. We invite them to different events that we'd host throughout the, the week or throughout the, the month. And one of those events that we would do every Friday night at a little place called Buckeye Village. Now, if you used to be a student at Ohio State, you probably know what Buckeye Village was. It does not exist anymore. Buckeye Village was the uh, family student housing. Most of the, the people that lived at Buckeye Village were uh, visiting scholars or grad students, uh, PhD students. But we would host different event, or an event there every Friday night. We'd invite these students to. We'd host a dinner. We'd host a meal. We'd have churches come in. They'd bring meals in. And after every meal, we would, we would do a Bible study with these students. Most of these students, they had never read the Bible, never heard the gospel. Many were unbelievers. They were reading the Bible for the very first time in their lives. It was a really incredible opportunity to reach unreached people groups. But I remember this one time, I remember this one time during the Bible study, and, and every, every Bible study, I would, I would do my best to get to the gospel. I knew that was, that was their greatest need. Whatever, whatever I could find within the passage we were looking at, we were going to get to the gospel. I remember one specific week, I was sharing the gospel, this group of about seven, eight international students, and a Middle East, one of the Middle Eastern students, after I was done at the table, he goes, that's it. That's it. I just have to believe in Jesus. That's it. I said, yeah, just trust in Jesus. You're forgiven for your sins. He said, there's nothing more that I have to do. He said, that doesn't make any sense. How could that be? And I shared with him about trusting in Jesus and how Jesus makes a payment on the cross. And, and because of that, we, we trust and we surrender our lives to Jesus and we devote everything that we have to, to Christ. But this young man could never fully understand that, that that was it. I just have to place my faith in a man that died 2,000 years ago at the age of roughly 33 years old, and that he rose from the dead. But that is just it. Jesus paid it all. And I think this leads us to the next point. Paul's petition, his pleading with the church at Colossae in chapter 3 he goes from his argument to his application. Read with me, starting in verse 1 and in chapter 3. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is, this is his petition. This is the solution to the problem that he's already laid out in the pre preeminence of Christ in chapter one, starting in verse 15 to 20. The preeminence of Christ. He's applying all that he said to now what do we do? He sums it up by saying, look to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look to where Christ is. You have died to your old self and to your old ways Live for him. Live for Christ. Look to Christ, and one day you will be with him in glory. Seek the eternal things. Don't seek the earthly things. Seek the everlasting things. Look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 1. I think June already recited some of it in his, his prayer of confession. Verse, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crap, cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Very similar language that we see here in chapter 3 of Colossians that we see there in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Look to Jesus. Put to death what is earthly in us. We are to have, sorry, look to death what is earthly in us. Kill that which is no longer in you. You're not defined by these things, but you're defined by Christ, who is all and in all. Look at verse 11 here. It says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, sympathy, slave, free, but Christ is in all. Sorry, Christ, Christ is in all and, and in all. Christ is all and in all. Got through it, thank you. So kill off what sin wants from you, what the temporal wants of you, what the enemy wants for you. The enemy loves, loves that we are prideful, that we are evil, that we are sexually impure, treating others poorly, lying to coworkers, neighbors, believers, non-believers, even church members. The enemy wants more of that. But Christian in the room, you are not of that. Because look at verse 12, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You are God's chosen. You're God's chosen. You are holy. You are beloved by him. And we are to have compassionate hearts, kind hearts. We are to be meek, to be patient. Forgiving hearts for those who have wronged you and us. Why? Because God has forgiven much for us. He showed the Colossians much forgiveness as well. And you know what? There's nothing special about you or me. Believe it or not, there's nothing special about you and me. We are sinners just like the rest. You know, some of us have quite the stories to tell when it comes to our testimonies. Hard past of maybe alcoholism, cheating on your spouse, taking advantage of people. Selfish living. And some of you, you grew up in the church. Your dad might have been a pastor. You came to know the Lord at six years old. You were serving in the nursery at age 10. You were a youth leader at age 16. You were a campus Bible study leader in the dorms at age 20. The worst thing that you'd ever done was you stole your sister's clothes out of her closet and wore them without her knowing it. That's some of you. But you were still far from God at one point. You were still far from God before you came to faith in him. And you knew just as much, you needed just as much forgiveness as the person that I talked about earlier. God has shown us much forgiveness. Forgive because God has forgiven much in your lives. We are so quick to judge other people's failures. We do it even in the Bible. We do it even in the Bible. Well, we would never do what the Israelites did in the Minor Prophets. That's just if you've read the Minor Prophets. I've done it. I know I have. But look at verse 15 here. 
And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed, to, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and be thankful for that. But I love what, 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 what he, how he encourages them at the end of the paragraph here in 16 to 17. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let God's word dwell in us richly. That word richly in the Greek is the word plusios, meaning in large amounts or abundantly. Let God's word dwell abundantly in us by teaching and admonishing and wisdom, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. I thought about that. When we sing songs here on Sundays, are we thankful do we feel thankful? I didn't choose that song. Jesus, thank you. But it just fits so well with that. We were once enemies. Now seated at your table. How beautiful that is. But do we feel thankful? Do we see the songs, the lyrics on the page, and are we thankful for them? Do we sing them with our whole hearts? I sure hope we do. I want to be more thankful when I sing the songs that we sing when we gather because they are rich. They speak of Christ so well in our worship, in our time, in our gathering. And it's about him. It's not about how we feel. When we sing, it's not about us. It's about him. And whatever we do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it for the glory of God. Paul encourages the church to do that in an orderly household. What an orderly household should be. See that in verses 18 through really Chapter 4, verse 1, orderly household. This is God's perfect design for the family. It's his perfect design for the household. We do not manufacture the perfect household and what we think is right. We trust God's design for the household because he's our creator and our savior and our sustainer, as we saw in chapter 1. We trust him and his word, and we do not allow the world to creep in and tell us what the home should look like or what it should be. If the Bible, which it doesn't say this, but if the Bible said that children should be the head of the household, then you should believe it and trust to it and submit to it. But he doesn't say that. Even though it doesn't make sense to us, he doesn't say that. And I want to believe God that he knows what's best and to humbly submit to what he says the order of the household should be. Which leads us to our last point. I told you we're not going to be here till two o'clock. The final prescription in chapter four. Here we see Paul's importance on the ministry and partnership. And Rob spent some great time diving through this exact passage last week, expositing what, what, what was taking place here. So I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on here. What Paul's doing in his closing is he's giving them purpose for the church to pray for him, to pray for his ministry, and to be ministering to those in Colossae who need the gospel with gracious speech and with purpose in their speech seasoned with salt to be salt and light to be salt and light in Colossae 
because so many people need the gospel. Be people above reproach, walk in wisdom. Pray the Lord would give you wisdom to show those who are lost that they would see the saving work of Christ in their lives and their need for them. But do it with grace. Do it graciously. Remember what Jesus, or what the Gospel of John says in chapter one, that the word of flesh dwelt among us and he was full of what? Grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth and he did it perfectly. He did grace and truth perfectly. We do not have that luxury, but we do have the Holy Spirit. Christian, you do have the Holy Spirit who can help us. How great would it be if we did those things so well, walking out our faith? if we did it perfectly, if we were gracious and truthful. Be truthful, but be gracious with those who are not gracious towards us. Be gracious to those that have different views to life than what we have, different worldviews. Be gracious, share truth. Be gracious, share truth. How far could that go in our world today if we did those things well? So that we could answer each person well thoughtfully, graciously, truthfully. We will have failures, absolutely, when sharing the gospel. Those will happen. And I, I even thought of one kind of recently, and I just thought, I'll share this with you, because I don't do this perfectly. But I know some, sometimes in our lives, or in our day-to-day life, at least my life, we'll sit on our front porch. After we put the kids to bed, we got a front porch, and people walk by, neighbors walk by, and Remember one night in particular, I'm sitting out there by myself and one of our, our friendlier neighbors stopped by and was just having a conversation with me and they had asked how my day was and it was on a Sunday and I kind of said, I went to church. So they started to press into that. Well, t- tell me about your church. So I started telling them about Citizens Church and I got in this, this kind of church history 101 course of the Reformation and why we believe what we believe, this, that, and the other. And I, I knew that they had kind of grown up with some Roman Catholic influence and, and started sharing about some of our convictions of a church. Long story short, their time had ended. I don't think I talked about the gospel at all. I failed in that moment. I used wisdom of things that I knew, but I didn't share Christ with them. I was so much consumed of trying to defend the Reformation that I didn't even, and my Reformed convictions, that I didn't get to their greatest need, Jesus. She didn't need a church, she didn't need a lesson on church history. But I will say this, that God is gracious in our failures. And I do believe that when we have more types of these conversations, we will be more equipped to do evangelism as we pray for those opportunities that the spirits would allow those to happen and to show up. Those conversations will go better. We lean into Jesus and his work, not in our own craftiness, our own giftedness, our own knowledge on a topic. Share Jesus and allow him to do the work of people. As Paul closes this letter and as Rob spoke about this last week regarding gospel partnerships, It's so important that we have partnerships with other churches and ministries. We cannot, we do not, and we cannot be a church that that does not fellowship with other other churches. It's why we pray for churches. It's why we partner with other pastors, other churches. It's why we meet with other 
churches and other pastors. That's why we're a part of networks locally and globally here, partnering together with other like-minded churches for further gospel advancements. We as a church, we need to be encouraged. And we want to be able to encourage other churches as well. We are in this together. No church should ever be on an island on its own. It's a dangerous place to be. Paul himself was not an island on his own. Jesus did ministry with others. He wasn't on an island on his own. Paul and Christ partnered with others. They had relationship with so many people, so many churches, so many ministries. And those churches he desired to be Christ-centered, gospel-driven like we see here. As we wrap up today, I want us to see the fullness and the sufficiency of Jesus and see how that guides the church to faithfulness. See how the gospel and how God's word shapes the church. Folks, the, God, the, the Bible is sufficient for ministry within the church. Our liturgy is, is laid out because we, we are serious about the sufficiency of scripture when it comes to the orderly, uh, the ordinary means of grace in the church. That is important. And Christ is the head of the church. And we desperately need that in our churches today. We need scripture to shape our church rather than businesses or culture or the social issues of the day. Let's start with the Bible. Let's contextualize well and let's preach Christ faithfully. And may the Lord allow that in this churches and churches throughout the world today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the church of Colossae. Thank you for the letter that the Apostle Paul felt convicted to write and that you worked in such a providential way for this letter to be in the canon of scripture that we have today, nearly 2,000 years later. And Lord, it is amazing that that we see the problems that they were dealing with, we still have today. Help us to cling tight to your word. Help us to cling tight to your gospel. Help us to cling tight to Christ and allow that to be the banner of, of the church here and around the world. Help us to be people that are also seasoned with salt in our words, to be truthful in our convictions, to be, but to be grace, gracious towards those that do not have the same convictions that we do. Well, help us to walk in wisdom, Lord, with those things. We live in a world that is just so divided on so many different things. And we, we desire the, the, the church to stand out as, as a place that is convicted by truth, but also gracious in how we care for people and to love those who do not love us. And we do that because of the forgiveness that Jesus, that you have shown to us, enemies to you, but now seated at the table alongside of you. We thank you for your word. Help us to walk in it this week. We love you, Lord. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.